He's known as the photographer who captured Woodstock and shot some of the world's most iconic musicians, including the famous Morrison Hotel album cover. All during the heyday of the 60s and on up to today, his name is Henry Diltz, and I'm so excited to share this journey with you as we tell all about stars such as Eric Clapton, The Doors, The Rolling Stones, The Mamas and Papas, Joni Mitchell, The Animals, Crosby, Stills and Nash, and many more. This is part one of my interview with Henry Diltz. Welcome to OWC Radio. First of all, let me just welcome you and say hi. Thank you, Serena. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm glad that we could both finally sit down and do this because we have a lot to talk about. And you have gotten incredible amount of publicity for the amazing people you've shot over the years, and you've got lots of stories to tell, and I do want to ask you about all of that. But I kind of want to start at the beginning and talk to you about you as a person, because what also is amazing to me is I think the reason you've been so successful is people just immediately love you. You're just so friendly and charming. And we've talked a little bit about our origins and your origins traveling around a lot. So can you tell people about little Henry <laughs> and what you were like when you were a kid and what was life like? Well, of course, I believe we're the product of our parents, the actual cells in our body, which I'm all about the cells. They're little living things that make everything work and give you a body. And so... You need to communicate with yourselves and thank them every day for doing a, a hell of a job. And I realized one day, well, all these cells came directly from my mother and father. I'm living in a body made up of their cells. I think I had a really great mother and father. My father was a pilot on TWA and then was in the Army Air Corps. And my mother was a stewardess on TWA. She was a very charming lady, a Michigan farm girl. Upper Peninsula, Michigan, where I have been a few times with my grandparents, and I just love it up there. I think I had a pretty cheery childhood. I was born in Kansas City, which was a, a TWA hub. And then I lived in a couple other TWA hubs, I think Florida and I think you know Pennsylvania. And then finally, we settled in New York, Long Island, New York, Great Neck, Long Island, New York, where I went to kindergarten, first, second, and third grade. And then when I was a little boy, my father joined the Army Air Corps and he was killed testing B-29s over Utah. And I guess 43, 44, something like that. Then my mom, who had two little boys, a year later remarried a gentleman named Don Duke, who was a lieutenant commander in the Navy. When I first met him, he had his Navy uniform on and he was my hero. As soon as he got married, he quit the Navy and joined the government. He worked for USIS, United States Information Service. Before that, it was called GHQ, General Headquarters. And soon after my mom married him, he went to Japan to set up a whole film thing over there in Japan right after the war because he was in films in USIS. So we followed him maybe six months later. So when I was nine years old, I began living in Japan for five years. And of course, I went to a, 
a school with all American kids and they were all pretty much army brats and military brats and then a few of us State Department people. But it was uh, great. Yogi Elementary School and then Megaro Junior High. Let's see, we went back to the States for a year to Upper Peninsula, Michigan. I remember the principal there at the school would say, you're not in Japan anymore, Mr. Diltz. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and, and indeed, I wasn't. I was. <laughs> and then we went from there to Bangkok, Thailand. So as a teenager, I was spent a couple of years in Bangkok, Thailand. The same thing there, but it was more diplomats children that went to the school, international diplomat children. So I remember Gloco's son, the daughter of the Chinese ambassador, and then the, I remember the son of the Portuguese ambassador. And we were all friends, all these people. It was called Bangkok International Children's School. And therefore, what should have been the ninth and 10th grade, but it was the eighth and ninth. I think they didn't have 10th grade. Anyway, then we went back to the States and lived in New York for a couple of years. And then I graduated from Great Neck High School and I was going to go to Montana University and study wildlife technology and be a forest ranger. And, and so the summer I was going to do that and I had a dorm room and everything was set up. And my mother said, well, your father has been assigned to Bonn, Germany, so you can go to Montana or come with us to Europe. I had to decide right there. And I said, well, you know, I thought I could always go back to Montana. I might as well try Europe for a year. So the only place to really go to college was in Munich, where there was an American college. It was a University of Maryland overseas branch. And once again, they were all sons and daughters of army attaches and embassy people. And it was another group, you know, sort of my third group of karmic friends, fourth, counting New York. is what you call an army brat, essentially. That's what I was, even though it was the State Department. You move around a lot, and so do your friends. They come and go. Your best friend is suddenly off to some other country, and then new people come in, and then you're always the new kid, and you got to make friends again. And so you get to start over again, and you meet such a mix of people. It's an interesting life. I know you, you and I have talked about that, Serena, because we share that background of, of growing up in, in different exotic places and, and making new friends all the time. But you can be comfortable in any situation, and I think that helps you with a career in the arts. Now, you made friends with a lot of the people you shot, but there's lots of times when I'm sure you were called in by the record company to shoot a cover and you only had a few minutes and you had to get in there and make everybody comfortable, right? I think that comes from having traveled around so much and being able to just sit down and, and talk mano a mano and, and, you know, get to know the real person in just a few minutes. I think that's wonderful. That sure does help. Being interested in people, not only the, the kids in the school growing up in Japan for five years as a young kid, I know that Japanese feeling, that reverence kind of for each other, you know, and then Thailand was a whole different culture and then Germany, Europe and all that. And and I played music and you know, I played the harmonica in the Boy Scouts in Tokyo when we'd go on camping trips. I played the clarinet in Thailand and I met a little Filipino clarinet player in a nightclub and he was a little short guy. Celio, and he taught me how to play. I used to sit on the edge of the bandstand and play my clarinet quietly while he was playing for the club. And then in Germany, I was with a choir that our university there had an amazing choir that traveled all over kind of southern Germany. So I always was really interested in music. Well, from that University of Maryland in Munich, Germany, I actually went to West Point for a year. It was a little side trip. 
I can't see you in West Point for some reason. Because I went to school <laughs> with army brats, all my friends, many of them wanted to go to the military schools, the Air Force Academy, and especially Annapolis and West Point. I remember one night I was reading a friend's handbook and it said, sons of deceased veterans can automatically take the exams. You don't need a congressional appointment, a senator to appoint you to do the exam. I guess I'm a son of a deceased veteran. And they said, well, hey, write a letter because in a few months we're going to Heidelberg and take the exam. We're going to have fun, you know. And I did. I don't know. For some reason, I pulled the trigger. I, I wrote a letter and they said, please report to Heidelberg. And anyway, the gist of it was I got accepted to West Point. And when I got that telegram, I was in bed in the dorm in Munich, Germany. And I thought, oh, God, and hell no, I'm not going to do that. I mean, in fact, I had a plan to hitchhike up to Scandinavia with one of my friends, Mylon Rupert. We we're going to spend the summer up in northern Sweden. And we thought we might try to cross over the border into Russia. We were young college kids, you know, out for an adventure. And then everyone at the university was saying, look, the dean said, congratulations, my boy. What a rare opportunity. And everybody was congratulating me. And, and I thought, oh, my gosh, I, I mean, I guess I better go and try it anyway. So I went for a year and tried it and I loved it. Did you really? Oh, well, it was military. I was so used to that. I could do that well. You know, there's a thing about we've all been warriors in past lives. It's a part of the human existence. And uh, I'm sure I have. And, and I, so I went for the year and I but I really missed music. I wanted to play the banjo so badly. Finally, after the first year, I contrived to leave and I bought a banjo and I moved to Honolulu, which seemed to me sort of like a foreign country, but I could go to an American college. <laughs> I went to Honolulu, went to University of Hawaii, and I was studying psychology, which was sort of my major from my first couple of years in college. And while I was there, I heard about a coffee house. I was looking for folk music because I had bought a banjo and a Pete Seeger book, How to Play the Banjo. And so I went down to this coffee house called the Green Sleeves Coffee House. I went down in the daytime and the owner was in there, Cyrus Fariar. I walked in and he said, a banjo. And he ran up and he's probably been one of my very best friends of this lifetime since that moment. So for a couple of years, I would sing in that coffee house with Cyrus or alone or with other people. Finally, we formed a group, a folk group. This was the early 60s when folk music was huge, the music of the land, right? It every, was. Every college had folk concerts, and we were some of those folk singers. For several years, we traveled back and forth across the country in a van and a bus and, and later by airplane. And we just sang a lot in folk clubs and TV shows, and we were in a movie. And gosh, we had a couple albums out on Warner Brothers, and then we had a Phil Spector single called This Could Be The Night, so we did a lot of singing and recording. And that's where I met all of my fellow musicians, you know, and you said it's comfortable for me to meet people and get along with them because of my background in military with army brats going to school. But also the second part of it was being a musician. Right. Because musicians also have a kind of a club. I and mean, if you're a musician and you meet another musician, you're automatically cut off. Oh, yeah, you're cool. You know, you're accepted. You're in the club. Musicians, they're cool. They're laid back for the most part. You know, they know how to get along. And it is an art and there's a love of music and you just make friends right away. Musicians hang out. 
Yeah. You know, musicians know how to hang out. I mean, in recording studios and, and airports and vans and backstage. I mean, it's a, a life of hanging out. I can do that. You're a good hanger outer. <laughs> and also, you know, my interest in people. I mean, I was studying psychology, really, because of all the courses I took in Munich. That one was so interesting to me. Wow. Neurotics and psychotics. And wow. I mean, how does all that work? I mean, the big question of life is, well, you know, here we are. What are we? You know, what are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to live this life correctly and in a good way? And therefore, psychology was offering me some answers about understanding my fellow man, maybe, and myself as well. It's very interesting how the mind works, how we fashion our personalities and, and how we feel about things. It's kind of vitally interesting. And, and so that interest in psychology, I mean, also makes me very interested in people. So I don't think of myself so much as a photographer. I mean, all, all my life, people would say, oh, you're a photographer. Are you a professional? And I would say, no, no, you know, not really. I mean, I just watch people and I take pictures of them. I don't have a big studio with lights and helpers running around. I don't set things up. I like to observe. I mean, they call it fly on the wall. I think it's one of the things that really catches my eye when I look through your pictures is you capture the person. You capture these famous people as people and in private moments because they trust you. And I think that that's another reason why people love your photographs so much. Because, you know, the concert footage, standing in the front there with all the other photographers and getting the pictures of people up on stage, that's great. And it's wonderful stuff. But you have some stuff from behind the scenes and backstage and in their homes and on the grass in the yard. And it's the hanging out. It's the hanging out that is absolutely amazing. And you're right about musicians. I mean, when I went to the studio, I was obviously marketing films, but I didn't want to lose the music. So I kind of created this whole division for the music videos and the albums. And, and then I got to hang out with the musicians because I always thought they were cooler than the film people. They were, to me, I'm going to get in trouble for saying this, but to me, they were just really cool to hang out with because they were real people. You know, I was there in those private moments by virtue of the fact that I was a musician. I would say almost more than that I was a photographer. I mean, I wasn't there for a photo shoot. I honestly was there hanging out at Mama Cass's house or somewhere up in Laurel Canyon or, or you know, down at the Troubadour or wherever I was. All of my friends were musicians and I had a little camera that I loved. I loved peeking through the little hole and framing things up. Being an observer and a kind of a student of life, that was a way of kind of sectioning off a little piece of it and sort of watching it. And then, by golly, it's magic. You push a little button and bang, you've saved that moment. It's very surreal now, years later, to think that I have captured all of these moments, these past moments, and people are interested in them. People want them for their walls. Yeah, I remember that day. And for a while, it bothered me because I also studied philosophy in college, especially in Hawaii. And existentialism was one course that I took, Kierkegaard, and, and all about how the moment is the thing, right? The past is the past. The future is yet to come. That's dreams. We got memories from the past. But we're here right now. This is the only real thing. This is the moment when you're alive. And I thought, well, to be known for saving these past moments doesn't seem very existential to me, you know? And, and then somebody, a friend one time said, well, yeah, but you bring the past moments into the present. There you go. And I thought, ah, oh, 
Okay. <laughs> Perfect answer. I can live with that, you know? Like I say, I didn't really do so many assignments in a magazine photographer, even though my stuff was in magazines, but I was more working for the groups. Sometimes the record company, but more the management company. There were management companies that managed Crosby, Sills, Nash, Neil Young, Joni Mitchell, the Eagles, Poco, all those groups. And then along the way, I met a partner, Gary Burden, who was a couple years older than me. He'd been in the Marines and he was an architect and he was remodeling Mama Cass's house. And they got to be really good friends. And Mama Cass said, Gary, I want you to do my album. First, I'm doing my first solo album cover. I'd like you to lay it out. And he said, Cass, I'm an architect. I'm not a graphic artist. And she said, well, you make a blueprint, you make an album cover. What's the difference? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah. And he said, oh, OK. <laughs> and Gary was a really cool guy. He was like the scoutmaster. Everybody liked Gary a lot. He was kind of like the leader. He was a Gemini. But I mean, he was really, really good friends with David Crosby and Graham Nash and Joni Mitchell and Mama Cass and all the people that I knew. And he actually saw me at a love in on a Sunday in the park, walking around, colorful clothes and love beats, taking photos of my fellow hippies. With your long hair back then, right? <laughs> kind of getting long, yeah, beetle cut. And he said, you're a photographer. You want to help me take a picture? I have to do this album cover. I said, I know Mama Cass really well. I met her on the road in the Mamas and Papas when I was singing in my group. We were called the Modern Folk Quartet, by the way. We did four-part harmony folk songs. So I worked on that album cover and then we just started doing album covers for all these people that we knew really well. And it was easier for them to say, hey, you guys take pictures. And Gary was great at planning an adventure. The management office said, well, we got this new group, the Eagles recording and we need an album cover. Do take a picture, do something. So Gary <laughs> was so great at planning an adventure. We're gonna drive out to Joshua Tree to the desert. We'll get there at night and spend the whole day in the desert taking photos. And so that's what we did. It was kind of a way to get the group out of town, someplace where you were concentrating on being together, doing something, having a real adventure, and away from, of course, their managers and girlfriends and phones. We didn't even have beepers in those days. The Eagles was 72. Yeah. 67 is when Gary and I started working together. 66 is when I picked up the camera on the road. Incidentally, that's how that happened. On the road in the morning, we were leaving the University of Michigan. And we had a little motor home. Yeah, it was a Clark Cortez motor home. As we were driving out of town, we noticed uh, a secondhand store and being musicians and being impulsive. Hey, wait, you know, pull over. Let's go in there. There might be some hidden treasures. We could spend a little money on stuff we don't need, certainly. And as we walked in the door, there was a big table full of secondhand cameras. And this fellow Cyrus that I met in the coffee shop in Honolulu, he was kind of the leader of our group. And he said, oh, a camera. I need one. He picked one up and I was behind him. I never thought about it. I said, hey, me too. Why not? I just kind of followed along and grabbed a $20 used Japanese camera. And that's what you started with? That's what I started. And then Cyrus said, Let's pull into the next drugstore and I'll buy film. We all bought cameras. And he came out and handed us each a yellow box. And I put the film in the camera. I said, well, how do, now what, how do you set these numbers, Cyrus? How do Because he, he knew about it. And he said, well, look on the box. It says sunlight, 250 at eight. And so I said, oh, okay, here's 250. Oh, here's the eight. 
let's go out in the sunlight. <laughs> and so for a couple of weeks, we photographed each other. And when we got home to L.A. after that trip was over, we we're driving across the country. We developed the film and lo and behold, they were slides, little transparencies. I never thought about it. It's going to be color, black and white. I don't know. I guess I saw it was color film. But for me, it was just, oh, I see a moment. I want to capture that and remember that. That's really cool. It frames up nicely. It feels good. Dang. And sometimes you frame up your friends and you watch them for a minute and then they might turn around and laugh out loud and bang, you get the picture. You kind of watch a little bit like a tiger in the bushes, which I am actually, my Chinese animal is a tiger, which I didn't learn until a few years ago, maybe five years ago. I mean, I know I'm a Virgo. I know I'm a number nine numerologically, but I didn't know about Chinese animals until an assistant came to work for me the first day, Dola, Dola Baroni. She said, what's your Chinese animal? And I said, gosh, I think I'm a tiger. I'm not sure. Great. She said, I'm a tiger too. She said, tigers are playful. They're sociable, but they're loners. And I went, oh, wow. Does that ever feel like me? And she said, we tigers like to sit up on top of the cliff and watch the other animals. And I went, oh my God. That's perfect for you. My best friend for life. And we talked about animals every day and she's writing a book about it. It's such a great way of just kind of assessing people, really. I've seen some of her videos. She seems like an amazing woman. Yes, yes, she is. A dancer, a, she learned buto dancing in Japan which is an organic form of, of movement, body movement. She moved to Austin and she has a new baby girl right now. Well, she was my assistant, but she was my teacher, really. I've learned about all the Chinese animals. I have a one sentence description of most all the animals. So when I learned that somebody is a horse or a dog. So I'm an ox and that's not nearly as romantic as being a tiger. <laughs> Even the name ox just doesn't sound very appealing. <laughs> well, they're very steadfast. You can count on them. Dola's mother was an ox, and she would have a, a one word to term, like a rooster. A rooster is declarative. <laughs> Wake up, everybody. Neil Young is a rooster. A horse and a dog are men's best friends. Some people are pigs. They don't want to say pig, so you can say wild boar. And a, a wild boar retains the information and says the information, like Brian Williams on the news. David Crosby's a Leo, the young prince. Stephen Stills is a Capricorn. Chinese New Year starts in February, so whenever the New Year is of that year, you're that animal from February on. My mother's an ox. They're stubborn and troubled. <laughs> no. Now, now, mind really? you. Really? That's not a, a description of everybody, you know what I mean? It's a, an aspect. I know some oxes that are just delightful people. You're one. I have friends that are oxes, and I have friends that are stubborn and troubled. My son is an ox, and he's a bit stubborn and troubled. I have a, a lady friend who's an ox. She's a bit that way. Yeah, I could see that in people. I'm, these are just general things, you know? You don't want to label somebody. It's just an aspect. It's a general possibility. They might be over here a little bit instead of over here. If you're telling somebody's horoscope, there are other signs that kind of balance them out differently, right? Because I'm a Cancer with a Virgo rising and a Capricorn moon. So I think maybe the Capricorn balances out all the other stuff. There is a balance of all those things. And whatever your moon sign is, it has to do with your emotional 
life feeling. And your rising sign, they say, is what you are when you walk into a party. What people see you as. I guess that's true. So you're a Virgo. A Virgo with Aquarius moon, Aries rising. David Cassidy is my Aries example. He said, you know what it's like to be an Aries? If I see a brick wall in front of me, I put my head down and go for it. (laughs) (laughs) That's kind of a little description about what that feels like. Life has been an adventure for you. Was your first sort of musical set up the Mama Cass thing your friend asked you to shoot? Well, immediately I was photographing the musicians in my group. And then when we'd stop in a club, there'd be another group there and I'd maybe take pictures of them in the dressing room. Or I was kind of exploring my surroundings, my environment by framing things up. And I was shooting a coffee cup or a doorway or a sign outside the club or yeah, just whatever I saw, whatever tickled my fancy. I just took a little picture of it. So in 66, I did pick up the camera And later that year, I photographed the Buffalo Springfield kind of by accident. I was walking down Laurel Canyon Boulevard and I heard guitar music coming out of a house. I knew who lived there and I went up to the door and it was Stephen Stills was visiting this friend of mine and playing the guitar. And I knew him really well from way back in the folk days. He said, hey, Henry, we're going to go to a folk club this afternoon in Redondo Beach, the Buffalo Springfield. Do you want to come along? And I said, yeah, great, because I'll I'll go down on the beach while they're doing their sound check and I'll photograph people for my slideshow. By this time, almost every weekend, I would have a slideshow, which is kind of a party with all my hippie friends. At one point in the party, we'd turn all the lights down and put some music on and start projecting these big, huge photos. And after a while, it was photos of them, the people at the party, because I'd spend the week hanging out with them and then I would show them the pictures and then they would say, oh, I didn't even know you took that. That's great. That's what I want to hear, you know. So Stephen said, you want to come along with us? And I went with him to Redondo Beach, went down to the beach, took pictures of people while they were doing the sound check. And then when I walked back to the club, I was photographing a huge mural on the wall of the back of the club, a couple stories high of a guy riding a bicycle. And the little door opened in the bottom of the mural and the Buffalo Springfield walked out of the back door to the club. And I said, hey, wait a minute, just stand there, you guys. I want to show how big that picture is. So to have five little figures standing below it. And so they all stood there and looked at me and I took a few. Oh, that's great. And then they started throwing shape, (laughs) doing stick. (laughs) And I just kept clicking. That's awesome. And I took a whole roll of film up there. And I never thought, oh, good, here's a rock group. I'll photograph a music group. No, it was really the mural. And them showing the size. <laughs> I love it. A couple of weeks later, a magazine called me and they said, we hear you have a picture of the Buffalo Springfield. We'd like to run one of them in our magazine and we'll pay you a hundred dollars. And I went, whoa, <laughs> that was the second epiphany. The first epiphany was seeing the first slide hit the wall in a slideshow and go, oh, my God, this is amazing. I can't believe we're right back at that moment when that happened. And the second epiphany was that somebody was going to pay me to do this thing that I couldn't stop doing all day long. (laughs) Were you still singing at that time? You still had your group? So our music group had recorded a single with Phil Spector. This could be the night and the whole wall of sound. He wanted to experiment with a folk rock group because of the Beatles. All the folk groups became folk rock groups. And so we did this song and that was near the end of 65 
And we waited and waited for half a year for to come out. We thought, oh, a Phil Spector single. We're, now we've made it. Our fortunes will be made. And he never put it out. He never put it out. He was so paranoid that he would ever release a song that wouldn't be number one. But I ended up playing in the Wall of Sand. I played on an Ike and Tina Turner record and Righteous Brothers record, Ebb Tide. He liked the sound of the five-string banjo mixed in with all the other instruments. It was a good thing. And finally, it came out like a year or so later on a, an English album. And in the meantime, a couple of the guys, Cyrus, said, well, I'm going back to Hawaii. Call me if anything happens. You know, we took a break. And we did get together 10 years later in 76, because 76 was the bicentennial. And we got an offer to play the Honolulu Hilton or something uh, for two weeks because they wanted folk music. And so that started us back up again. And we sang more for about three years, recorded a couple albums, broke up again until 88. Somebody in Japan said, you know, you have a lot of fans in Japan. If you guys came over here, you could do a tour. And we did, and we've done six tours of Japan since 88. One was a couple years ago, the last one. And we've made in about six more CDs over there. So. We've continued to be active. You know, it's been a few years and the other guys are all record producers and musicians and they do their own stuff. And I take photos. Can I buy those CDs here in the States? Where do you go to get them? Not all of them. I mean, you can look on eBay. Spotify only has one folk album. Really? We keep talking about getting the rights to some of those Japanese albums and putting them out. I mean, you'd have to hunt MFQ or Modern Folk Quartet under both names. Well, let's do that. Let's see if we can find it. I would love to, to find it. You know, I was talking to my granddaughter about folk music, and she doesn't even really know what it is. She didn't know what hair was. I put the album on and started playing hair for her. I was thinking, Henry, that there's a whole generation of people out there, and when they hear it, they love it. Well, sure, they do. Well, you know, folk music got to be a big thing. I don't know, you know, partly because of Pete Seeger and the Weavers. They were the folk group. And you kind of loved his banjo playing and his talking. And he was such a folksy, down-to-earth guy. I mean, it just caught on. The Kingston Trio, they were kind of like the Beatles for us. Every time a new Kingston Trio would come out and there'd be a couple a year, you'd run down to the record store and buy it and run home and listen to it over and over again. What did he play there? What did he say? You know, somebody yelled something in the background. What was that? Boy, we just pour over it minute by minute. So folk music became very popular. You don't write folk songs, essentially. They're 100-year-old songs from miners and sailors and cowboys and the mountain men. So you find an old folk song and you kind of tailor it to your, your style or your group. And that's what all these people were doing. And there were beatnik coffee houses all over the country where beatniks would play chess and listen to classical music and have poetry readings and stuff. And those became little folk havens because people would wander in with a guitar and sit in the corner and play folk music. And pretty soon they were a coffee house was a place where folk music went on. And that went on for all the early 60s. And then when the Beatles played Ed Sullivan, all the folk groups watched that on TV and said, wow, look at that. Look at what fun they're having. We need to electrify our guitars. Our group had a stand up bass. Oh, jazz nice. and yeah. bass. After we saw the Beatles, we went out and got an electric bass. And Chip became our electric bass player. And 
I even electrified my banjo. But it wasn't bluegrass. I would play it like a jazz piano kind of plucking or playing certain chords. Then you had folk rock because of the Beatles and Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan was writing a talking blues a la Woody Guthrie. And so the idea that you could write your own music. Now, the Beatles didn't write music right away. They sang Blue Suede Shoes and Roll Over Beethoven. And then they kind of got the bug. Maybe their manager told them it's something. They wrote, I want to hold your hand. That was brilliant. You know, and Bob Dylan wrote this talking blues. And so it became a thing. It spread and spread. Oh, you can write your own feelings, your own ideas, your own visions, and put that in the song. And then when you sing it for people, you're really giving them a piece of yourself. You're not just singing some old cowboy song. That was a renaissance. That was a flowering that happened. Smoking God's Herb had a great deal <laughs> to do with every single bit of it. I do a slideshow nowadays and I'm showing pictures and I, and I have to talk about what we did every single day, which was have a little toke of God's Herb because it just kind of brightened things up spice things up. I mean, it, it, what it does is heightens your senses. And so musicians love that because then they feel like playing and singing. Oh, they pick up their guitar. You know, I haven't, I haven't touched that in a few days, but now I'm feeling great. Give me that guitar. Artists, I mean, writers, it stimulates your mind, your eyes, in my case, your ears, because those are your major senses. Pot or grass or marijuana, as you call it, it's a flower. It's not a man-made thing. There are other drugs that are white powders and different things that are, that are man-made, and they're not good for you. They don't have a balance. They throw you way out of balance. But smoking these flowers, just not to overdo it, like a fine glass of wine is great, but you don't want to drink two bottles of this stuff at one. So you have a little token. And, and also, if you're on the road and you're driving 10 hours somewhere from one gig to another, it can be awfully deadly boring. But if you have just a little taste, then your mind becomes alive. Maybe you start singing, you know, maybe you all write a song, maybe you're reading something. For me, I'm taking pictures out the window and it's a wonderful thing. I have to say that. And so I say when I do my slideshow, I tell people that that's what we did. I mean, every single day. One time a guy came in, I had a little photo gallery in Soho in New York, and a guy came in, it was only my pictures on the wall, like a hundred pictures. He said, did you ever smoke grass with any of these people? And I looked around and I said, every single one of them. <laughs> I mean, literally, I said, except for Donny Osmond, Michael Jackson, <laughs> Donnie <would> never. <laughs> and Mike Nesmith of the Monkees who smokes it now, but he didn't back then. What's well, <laughs> so, legal now. Yeah, it is, you know, and I mean, used in the right way and understood for the, the wonderful gift that it is. It's a fantastic thing and it, it'll help make the world a better place. It makes you relax. It makes you love life. They said no one ever had a fight when they were high, you know, <laughs> because you're like, <laughs> oh my God. So in my slideshows, I say, how do you think all that music came out of Laurel Canyon? I do think Smoking Gods are really had a lot to do with the musical explosion in the late 60s, early 70s. It was certainly a way of life, that and love beads and peace and love and brotherhood. We've taken a little zigzag, you know, we've yeah. zigged and we got to zag back again. I think we will. We're in the Aquarian age now. This is the dawning of the age of Aquarius. Well, now we're in it, but it's 2000 years long. 
And so somewhere in that 2000 years, we really slowly, we begin to become better human beings. We remember things we've forgotten. We kind of access our higher frequency, our higher vibration, because we have that. We've all been born and reborn hundreds, hundreds of times. We don't remember that, but our soul and inhabits our body is much older than the way we think of it and treat it. You're Serena, I'm Henry, I take photos, you're interviewing me, but wow, it goes way beyond that. There's so much more. That's okay, we have to learn to, uh, to understand that and feel that. That's what being a human is, learning. And that brings me back to what I wanted to say about Adola and the Chinese animals. And I said, Dola was my assistant, but she was also my teacher. And indeed, everybody is your teacher. And we are here to learn. So Swami Satchidananda, a lovely Indian gentleman, in his book of Everyday Sayings, he says, yes, we're all here to learn. Therefore, we're all students. He said, but you should think of yourself as the only student and everybody else is your teacher. So everybody that you meet all day long, and indeed it's true. And the ones that give you the most hassle and the most trouble are your biggest teachers. Because they're making you react, they're making you deal with the situation. So you just think of that whenever somebody gives you a hard time. Just think of that. I had a spiritual teacher, Betty Walton, and she said, yeah, if somebody says something shitty to you or something really bad or something, you, you don't get mad. You smile and you say, thank you for telling me that. You know, you know somebody, you know, you're no good, you're a son of a bitch. And you just smile and say, thank you for telling me that. And it disarms the situation right away. Yeah, they don't know what to do. Wait a minute, you know. <laughs> so as I said, I started reading the gurus as, as a musician in the 60s, right? Around about maybe 64 or 5, I picked up this book, Orange Book, with a black and white picture of an Indian gentleman with long hair. It was called Autobiography of a Yogi by Paramahansa Yogananda. And it's a world-famous book about a young Indian boy who knows he's born kind of in a spiritual way and he spends his life looking for his guru all over India. And he describes it kind of, it's not like the Bible, it doesn't tell you how to live, it just tells his story of meeting all these fantastic spiritual leaders or these gurus in a cave, you know, up in Northern India and what he learned from each of them. And then he came to America and established the Self-Realization Foundation, SRF. And I read that book and I said, wow, really? I mean, life could be this way? You know, this is a possibility of how to live life? This is amazing. And from there, over the years, I've just followed various gurus and meditation things and kind of dabbling, taking a little bit from each of them. And I love to read books like that. You have such a big heart. I know the minute I met you, I thought, this is really a cool guy. And I, I'm glad we have a chance to talk because during the pandemic, it's really difficult for people because we don't have that personal interaction. It's, it's hard to sit on a Zoom call and really feel the other person. I mean, one of the reasons I do this is everybody I interview is a teacher for me. I learn something. I take something away. And because I do it for them, I do it because I want to get their word out. You do a lot of interviews, but what I really wanted to bring out from you to a lot of other people is right now, creative people are having a hard time. I had 
three people last week who are very well known called me and asked me if I could help them find jobs or if there was anything I could do to help them. And I thought, you know, you have been someone who has never stopped. You look like you really love what you do, and it reflects back in your work. And I don't know, what can we give to people to help them keep going on? So first of all, God made us all different and hope we would share. And so that's what we're doing right now. And you think of all the people and all the circumstances. I mean, there are people who've had dear ones pass away. Incidentally, I say they walked into the next room. When you leave your body and go to the other side, the gurus say, oh, it's no big deal. You just walk into the next room. It keeps going, only it gets better. At my age, 82, many of my dear karmic friends have walked into the next room. I know they're still somewhere. They're just, they're just not right here, but they're somewhere else. So sure, there are people who have had close, dear relatives, close family friends walk into the next room. And that's something hard to deal with, but it's a lesson. And they're your teacher from doing it, because now you've got to deal with that grief somehow. And but, but if you understand what it's about and keep love in the forefront, now your mom's on the other side. Well, now you can talk to her every morning. You don't have to get on the telephone. And yeah, some people who are used to a, a social life every night, or they just dying to get out and have a glass of wine with friends. I mean, it is hard, but life is chapters. Different chapters. You can think back. You can think back to five or six or eight or 10 chapters in your life, and there will be another 10 to come. And this is one we're in right now. It's a chapter about being alone. That's for sure. But gosh, there's books. There's movies. There's certainly internet and texting and phoning people, which I find I'm doing constantly. I'm in touch with so many people that like old friends I haven't talked to in years, and they call you up. How you doing? So there is that. We just can't go out and mingle. I, you know what? You can't go out and meet a whole bunch of people, some of them friends and some of them new people. That's a kind of a flow of life. When I think of going to a club to photograph somebody, and I know I'm going to see old friends, and that's going to be great, and I'm going to meet some new people. I'm going to say, wow, that's a cool guy, or that's a really nice young lady. And there's that flow of life, which is great. But right now, we're kind of hiding in our caves. We're by ourselves. Time alone is nice, too, though. I'm finding that I feel much more creative. My mind is going 100 miles an hour, and I'm thinking of all these things that I had set aside, like writing and singing and playing music and just experiencing this little bubble around me and allowing myself time to just think, you're a tiger. You must sort of enjoy this quiet time a little bit, too, right? I do. I don't really have a problem with, with staying by myself. I spend half the week in Laguna Beach and I spend the other half in North Hollywood at my little uh, studio bungalow. And I have an assistant who lives here and I have a, a lady friend in Laguna. And so I'm not always totally alone. There's somebody. I mean, I guess some people are just flat out alone month after month. I know some people just order all their groceries on Amazon. They never even go to a grocery store. I go once a week with a mask buy a few things, but basically it's easy. Stay away from the bug and then you won't have to go through all that stuff, you know? One of my favorite pictures of yours is the one on the grass in the yard. I think it's in Laurel Canyon and it's Joni Mitchell and David Crosby and Eric Clapton. And there's a little baby in the shot. And I looked at that and I thought, 
that's kind of what I miss, a little bit of that, you know. Tell me about that shot, because I love that picture. Yeah, that is a fun shot. I mean, that all started out because Mama Cass, who we call the Gertrude Stein of Laurel Canyon, because she was always getting people together, like Gertrude Stein did in Paris, well, all the artists, she would do that. And being in the Mamas and Papas, they were constantly on big TV shows, And very often there would be a group from England, young boys, first time in the States. And that happened with Cream, with Eric Clapton's group. They did a show together and they're backstage and musicians, they talk. And she found Eric to be very interesting, but very shy and very quiet. And so that brought out the mother hen instinct in her. And she said, listen, Eric, you don't know anyone in town. Why don't you come up to my house tomorrow afternoon? I'll invite some friends and we'll have a little picnic in the backyard. And so he came up and he was very quiet and very shy. And she invited a few friends. Mickey Dolenz came from the Monkees because he was a dear friend of all of ours in Laurel Canyon near me. And my friend Gary Burden was there with his wife and daughter. And she invited David Crosby, who came with his young protege, this girl he'd met in a club, Joni Mitchell. And he produced her first album. I mean, he'd seen her playing there and and said, wow, you know, you got to record this stuff somehow. Got a record deal. And he was producing the first album. So no one had heard her play. Her album wasn't done yet. And so she sat on the lawn and David said, yeah, play something. And she sat there and played her entire first album. I've looked at clouds from both sides now. I mean, amazing music. And Eric Clapton is sitting there like mesmerized, staring at her. Not only were the words and music just angelic and very, very beautiful and interesting and compelling and mesmerizing, but she played the guitar in a very different way. Joni Mitchell tuned her guitar to a chord so that she didn't play those complicated chord situations with her fingers. All she did was she just lay her finger right across the fretboard up and down, and that would change the note to a different chord. And Eric had never seen that before. I mean, the great blues player had never seen that. It's kind of Hawaiian slack key tuning. It's kind of a folk tuning. She always tunes her guitar to some kind of a chord. David Crosby did the same thing. It's a certain style of playing. And so he sat there for the longest time. It was right under the birch trees at the edge of the lawn, right there in the hills of Laurel Canyon. And the little baby is Owen Elliott. It's Cass's little girl. Who's about a year old. And if you see that picture, you can see she's holding one of my little Kodak film cans when they used to be metal and has a, a yellow top. And she was kind of holding that and kind of biting it or something in the picture. Yeah. And I just sat there. I mean, I was mesmerized as well. And I took photos while they were doing it. A few close-ups of her, some of her and David, and then the wide angle that had all of them in it. That was just me enjoying it and watching it and sort of wanting to remember it. It's not so much, gosh, I want to remember that. It's more like, boy, this is a beautiful situation. I want to see it kind of squared off. I want to see just Joni and her guitar. I want to see Joni and her guitar with David over her shoulder. Now I want to see all three of them. And it's a kind of a game that I play, which is a kind of a balancing game. It's a framing. I have a framing Jones. It makes me feel good physically to frame. And of course, we had a little taste of God's herb. 
I mean, my gosh, in the picture, you see David leaning against a tree in the background, smoking a big old joint. There's one picture where he's holding his hand out, you know, offering it to me. And so, yeah, we were all in a wonderful, pleasant mood. I mean, it was a lovely day up in Laurel Canyon and the, this beautiful music playing and Mama Cass making lunch and God, it was great. Those yeah. are great days. <laughs> and that was only part one. Next up, we continue our journey with more crazy, cool stories from photographer and friend Henry Diltz. Please subscribe so you can get notified when each episode of OWC Radio is published. And if you like the show, give us a five-star review. Thanks to you, our audience, and thanks to Otherworld Computing for sponsoring these amazing behind-the-scenes journeys. Until next time, this is Serena Catania signing off and reminding you, get up off your chair and go do something wonderful today. Oh, by the way, I found the Modern Folk Quartet's album, so I'll play you a few seconds of it as a special surprise to Henry. This will get your energy going. Have a great day. Bye. Swing low. Swing low. Sweet chariot. Coming for to carry me. You swing man chariot stopping, let me ride. Swing man chariot stopping, let me ride. Rock me, Lord, rock me, Lord. Come and easy. I got home on the other side. When Ezekiel stepped out to the middle of the field, he saw an angel working on that chariot wheel. But old Zeke wasn't real fussy about working on the wheel. He just wanted to see how the chariot feel. Why don't you? Swing that chair, stop it, let me ride. Swing that chair, stop it.